Take your seats, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Craft to Services, the show where we look back at the quote-unquote bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. I'm joined in this episode by Robin D. Laws. Robin is a writer and game designer and the creator of the Gumshoe Investigative Roleplay System. He's also a novelist, having written works set in various RPG universes, and has written a number of nonfiction books with a gaming focus. His most recent book, Beating the Story, How to Map, Understand, and Elevate Any Narrative, is a guide to hammering stories into shape. Robin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. Uh, you have another book called Hamlet's Hit Points about structure and storytelling in narrative games, and now you've got Beating the Story. How does building a narrative for a role-playing game or an interactive game differ for constructing a more linear one for an, a book or a film? Uh, one of the big differences in doing Beating the Story, which takes the narrative analysis from Hamlet's Hit Points, which is focused on role-playing and just applies it to all narrative, right. is that something that you don't have to worry about uh, in... Uh, a role-playing game which just sort of handles itself but is crucially important in the pacing of narrative and very relevant to a discussion of Orson Welles <laughs> is uh, transitions. Yeah. Is that how you move from scene to scene and how you connect those scenes and, and what you do, uh, whether the scene uh, directly follows on from a point raised in the previous scene or whether it moves to a different viewpoint character or uh, it's the same viewpoint character but a a different situation and um, how you uh, manipulate transitions and use them to see how the momentum of your story is coming across uh, is crucially important in all traditional passive narrative and, and not an issue at all in role playing. I guess it's a little different when your main characters are kind of telling you what they're going to do. Uh, exactly. Or <laughs> the, it, it's not. And, and the uh, attention span of players is they're they're already invested. They don't need to be uh, kept along. Sure. Uh, there are other things you need to do for pacing reasons, like tell them to stop making in jokes about Star Trek. But <laughs> never, uh, never do that. <laughs> no, yeah, that never has never happened in the history of role playing games. Right. Uh, but in uh, a traditional narrative, you're uh, competing with all sorts of other distractions, and uh, the uh, difference between something that is extremely compelling and uh, something that the, the audience begins to lose focus in. There's a bunch of ways you can lose focus, but one of those ways is to be uh, inattentive to, to transitions and sort of uh, starting to, uh, you know, meander in your third act or, or what have you. Something that I always run into when I'm constructing a narrative as a game master is planning a whole side quest or some like great town that the I figure the players are going to go to, and then they go a completely different way, and then that just goes into a folder, and maybe that'll be the next town that they meet up with, trying to save. Yeah, so that's another events. thing about role playing. There's the narrative that you think is going to happen that right. is in your head, creating the adventure, and then there's what actually does happen. Uh, and of course, that's that's the famous cliche is that if you have the guy in the hat with the tavern and the sword and the uh, fiery eyes, uh, they're going to go and talk to the bartender instead. And <laughs> Right. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that you talk about on your podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about stuff. Uh, indeed, yes. Among uh, many other things, we talk about uh, games in particular, both role playing game designers and uh there's a how to write good segment that comes out of the <laughs> insights in uh, beating the story. But we also talk about uh, all sorts of other things uh, within the remit of our expertise. So that includes uh, history, time travel, occultism, conspiracies, all of which have become uh, weirdly and unfortunately more relevant 
over the course of time that we've been doing this podcast. So <laughs> yeah. uh, all, all the stuff that used to be esoteric and weird is creeping its way out of the internet into the front pages. And um, when you write horror, it sucks to be prescient, let me tell you. You were on my Star Trek show last year, and we ended up talking a lot about the genre of noir in film, which you're something of an expert on. What, what is it about noir, in your opinion, that made it such a popular and resilient genre? I'm not even, I, I hate to reject your premise, but it's not even necessarily all that clear that at the time it was popular. Interesting. That the, uh, first of all, film, film noir is a term that was retrospectively occur, uh, applied to a bunch of different films from the, mostly from the 40s and 50s that have a bunch of qualities in common. And there are different sort of subsets of noir, and we can uh, get into that a bit. Uh, but, and very often they were sort of intended as kind of uh, programmers, films that were, you know, fit a category and weren't necessarily the big prestige uh, films of that year. And uh, the film we're going to discuss was very much in that category. It was uh, an assignment that was supposed to be a simple genre film uh, <laughs> that the director was supposed to be able to easily knock out and and have a nice normal movie that would be, you know, not a, uh, a big deal because, of course, in those uh, years, you know, you just filled the theaters with uh, programming and things turned over uh, pretty quickly and people went out to the movies all the time and you weren't always going to a big uh, prestige uh, A picture. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these, uh, uh, if you're looking for films that were critically ignored at the time and have later become cult favorites, the list of them that are film noir is very, very long because this was sort of a disregarded genre at the time. The subject matter is often extremely uh, bleak in the way that uh, film buffs enjoy and the film goers of the day might not necessarily have, have enjoyed. Yeah. And of course, you get to have all sorts of cool arguments over what really constitutes what is, a noir. Yeah, right. Uh, whether in any film made after 1960 can be noir, whether any film made in color can be noir, uh, what really all of those things mean. Because unlike, say, a Western, uh, where the tropes are pretty clear and it's, you know, you're presumably set in a time period uh, that uh, what what is and isn't noir is sort of is sort of up for grabs. And it's almost kind of a point system. It's OK. There's there's light shining through Venetian blinds. That's one point. <laughs> right. There's a, a unhappy ending. That's another point. There's, a, you know, a, a bleak. Uh, worldview informed by uh, veterans coming back from uh, World War II, another point. And uh, if you rack up enough points, you've got a noir. Yeah, I'm not sure about the blinds exactly, but a lot of those fit some of the samurai films like uh, Kurosawa and the samurai period films. I'm thinking in particular of uh, something like Yojimbo, which of course is remade into a Western and then was remade into like a 30s what was that Bruce Willis movie, Last Last Man Standing, I think it was? Uh, it was like and, a... and began as a hard-boiled detective novel. That's right. Uh, it's Hammett. a Dashiell Hammett yeah. story that uh, was, uh, uh, it's an uncredited remake, but clearly it's it's Red Harvest. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's roots uh, as a sort of a, a noir film and, and Kurosawa's role as a sort of... Uh, a reconfigurer of genres that then gets you know, sent back and reconfigured yet again is, is also a, a very interesting one. So, uh, you know, Yojimbo uh, is a samurai, but yes, absolutely. He is, a, he is definitely a noir protagonist because he's, he's the continental op with a sword. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, well, let's uh, we'll table that discussion about the nature of noir uh, for later in the show. Um, this is an episode of A Few First. It's the oldest film that we've discussed. It's the first film noir we've covered, and it's our first Orson Welles movie. And I feel like Orson Welles might be a fitting patron saint of this show, at least from the angle that a lot of people in the establishment didn't like the films he was making at the time, but many of them went on to be regarded as classics. What's your opinion generally on Welles as a filmmaker? Um, I uh, am a big fan of, uh, uh, particularly of uh, Citizen Kane, of course, uh, and uh, uh, Chimes at Midnight. I only recently uh, caught up with uh, after seeing his new film, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, Wealth has a, a film called The Other Side of the we uh, Wind, which is a 2018 release. Right. Because uh, legendarily, speaking of troubled production histories, uh, the word troubled production history basically attends to everything Wells did after Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we're going to get into to that a bit uh, here with this one, because uh, this is certainly no exception to that. But uh, And uh, speaking of transitions, Wells is really a master of... Uh, moving from one scene to another and connecting things and maintaining momentum and was decades ahead of his time in what he was doing, including, uh, for example, the cutting speed. So uh, not just in Citizen Kane, which is very famous for putting together a nonlinear narrative in a way that maintains momentum throughout, even if you look at Chimes at Midnight, which is a Shakespeare adaptation. Right. It's like all the good bits from the history plays with Falstaff in them. Um, the, the, his editing speed is so much faster than anybody's in the 60s in particular. In the 60s, everybody else slows down because they're trying to work in CinemaScope and you can't cut fast in CinemaScope. Sure. But he is like as fast as MTV in <laughs> Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took a, a generations for uh, people to speed up uh, to his uh, uh, cutting speed, but he always did it uh, extremely well. It wasn't just sort of the random Michael Bay cutting that you get to artificially create rhythm that really pulls you uh, through it. So he was a real master of the form, but he was always stylistically out of step with what everybody else was doing, uh, has a high degree of theatricality because, of course, he comes not just from... Uh, radio uh, drama, which he's you know, famous for the whole War of the Worlds thing, but also uh, he was probably more successful as a stage director over the, over the course of the years he was doing that than he finally became as a, as a film director. And uh, he was able then to import all sorts of theatrical tricks into um, his films. And that's definitely what you see uh, uh, here as well. And, and even though this is sort of a, a yet another film where it gets taken away from him and we can't, there's a whole question of, you know, creative intent in this film because is he the author or is the producer Harry Cohn who took it over and recut it for a year? Is he the author? Are these effects on purpose? Are they accidental? Uh, but uh, that's uh, something that you, you know, you have to reckon with, uh, with Wells because he so rarely got his way. And this movie certainly has his touch, but there are also a lot of random cuts in it uh, that he had nothing to do with, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. First, I want to say that the name of this show is, of course, Craft of Services. On every episode of the podcast, we look at a film that's poorly rated, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, but one that's well-remembered by audiences and modern critics. And that mostly applies to today's, to today's film in that it bombed and was lambasted by critics in 1948. But now it's seen as, well... Uh, it's still a chaotic and indistinct film, but it's one that contains a lot of triumphs, even if the parts are greater than the whole. And I'm talking, of course, about Orson Welles' 1948 film, The Lady from Shanghai, 
Wells was handed a blank check creatively when he got to Hollywood in 1940, an arrangement that was nearly unheard of for the era. And the result was Citizen Kane, widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best, films of all time. But the film was mired in controversy, specifically from the film's arguable subject, William Randolph Hearst, who attempted to suppress the film, both in his media outlets and by threatening to sue RKO, uh, the film's uh, studio, over its veiled depiction of him. Wells' next film for the studio, The Magnificent Ambersons, was taken away from him in the editing room, with over an hour of footage being left on the cutting room floor. It'd be something that would come to define Wells' tenure in Hollywood, the stage director turned filmmaker delivering films that embraced the theatricality and mise-en-scene of his theater roots, only to have the controlling studio recut the resulting movie to something more commercial and germane to the current cinematic marketplace. And such is The Lady from Shanghai. It's an off-kilter film with a creation story that's nearly as twisty as the film's convoluted plot. And like many of Wells's butchered masterpieces, it yet remains a fascinating artifact of a singular creator in conflict with the studio system of early Hollywood. Um, I guess we should talk about the elephant in the room in this case. Uh, are you a Citizen Kane fan? Absolutely, yes. I am as well. Uh, do you think that it is um, so highly regarded today, and it was um, fairly highly regarded then as well, is that down merely to his um, his just unilateral ownership of the picture and his vision for it? Um, the screenplay, which he didn't write, uh, is also yes. a masterpiece. Uh, the uh, performances, uh, which he certainly has a hand in as a director, and certainly in that, in that case, and, and a bit in this case, it's drawn from his stock company of actors that he worked with on radio and on stage in New York. Right. So he gets a partial uh, credit for that. Um, it also has that feel of the sort of magical film that uh, kind of uh, comes together in a way that's uh, bigger than the contribution of any one person. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, definitely uh, Wells himself uh, saw Kane and its reputation as a, as a double-edged sword because uh, as a, you know, his first film, he made what was a, sort of recognized as a masterpiece, but also disdained by in big quarters because it is so different and so stylized Yeah, uh, that he uh, notoriously was, was always saying, well, my next movie is going to be better than Citizen Kane. <laughs> sure. So that was yet another uh, uh, millstone around, uh, around his neck. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's all sorts of uh, fascinating uh, things about how he executes that. And, and it is why the film is so still rewatchable today. You don't just look at it and go, oh, I see all these elements that later got became standard, but there, it still has a power beyond uh, its, its innovation uh, in a way that, uh, you know, a lot of other pioneering films uh, you will look at and go, oh, here's the, you know, like the early Fritz Lang silent spy movies. You sure. look at those and go, here's where all of the tropes and cliches come from, but you're not watching them going, I'm just as gripped as I would be watching a modern thing using all of these elements. Yeah. And you had mentioned before that at the time, it wasn't even necessarily something that they thought of, like they didn't have the term film noir. And I think that um, those films are probably just referred to as melodramas or, or dramas or something like that. Or, and, or crime drama. Uh, crime dramas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, they used a lot of the sort of German expressionist uh, type elements. So that being true, do you think of noir as a genre then uh, defined retroactively? Or is it simply... Films that have a the, the right collection of sort of tropes uh, are sort of added to the canon of film noir. Well, uh, genre is always fuzzy. Yeah, uh, genre is is more than a marketing hook. Uh, that uh, it has to have sort of a, an aesthetic to it that uh, that connects it. And uh, as I said, film noir is one of the most f 
fun genres to talk about because there's a, the definitional questions. <laughs> uh, for example, uh, you know, there are kind of two big streams of noir. There's the uh, the mystery the, featuring a hard-boiled detective, and those, uh, you know, are heavily inspired by literary works and come out of uh, uh, the Continental Op, as we mentioned before, and Sam Spade, the other uh, Dashiell Hammett detective, and Philip Marlowe. Uh, and so uh, all of the uh, sort of adaptations of hard-boiled stuff seem to fall into that category. But then, then there you have your, your James M. Cain strain of stories, which are about uh, people descending into a spiral of uh, of doom and depravity, <laughs> and uh, that's more the case here. Is that there? You know, there's gunplay and uh, and so forth in Lady from Shanghai, but it's not uh, the story of a mystery being solved, but a uh, a tightly connected group of people who uh, destroy each other. <laughs> right, the 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 sharks uh, from from the speech in the film. Yes. Uh, one of one of the great early disturbing monologues. That's the you know always be closing speech. Of yeah, the right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I want to hear Alec Baldwin uh, do that monologue. Yeah. <laughs> third prize, third prize is a set of steak knives, and you get eaten by a shark. Right. Exactly. It's like uh, you can feel the mist of murder on your face, or, or whatever it is. Uh, I think some people have said that the first true film noir is Stranger on the Third Floor uh, by Boris Ingster. Um, I, have you seen that film? Uh, that does not ring a bell. I, um, you know, I haven't seen it either. Uh, Alan, uh, Elaine Silver and Elizabeth Ward wrote a book about film noir called Film Noir, and they sort of pegged that it's a 1940 film as the first uh, sort of technical film noir film. And I think technically the term was coined by a by a French critic like in the mid 40s. But it comes from a set of the uh, French detective. Uh, Crime novels were marketed under the the brand uh, Serie Noir, the uh -huh. Black series. Okay, sure. And then because of the heritage of uh, film noir coming out of uh, those uh, books by those writers, uh, the, uh, the French critics labeled it film noir, which is, of course, why we're using a French term right. for a quintessentially American genre. And, of course, the movement was pushed forward by the work of directors, um, German directors who were and, and European directors who were fleeing uh, Europe at the time, like Fritz Lang and Robert Siodmak and Michael Curtis. Um, M is one of my favorite films, and if it's not a noir, I don't want to be right. Yeah, so it's 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 not noir only in the sense that uh, it's it's American, and and I I know that your commenters are are well actualing you as you speak. So uh, <laughs> Michael Curtis is Hungarian. Ah, of course, yes. Yes. Uh, so Eastern Europe then? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Um, and I have not actually seen the 1951M simply because I I just don't want anything to occupy that space in my brain other than the 1931M. Uh, yes. Yeah, so my understanding is that it adds a lot of Freudianism uh, that it doesn't need. Interesting. So the, all that being said, how do you think that The Lady from Shanghai measures up as a noir? Um, I think the thing that it really brings to the noir table is a intense sense of, of stylization that is even greater than the it goes beyond expressionism into a certain sort of hyper reality and it, it, it becomes uh, surreal at times in a way that uh, later neo-noirs that try to evoke the original noir style okay. take a lot of cues from okay um, and that is in overt ways like the shootout at the in the hall of mirrors at the end uh, which of course is a classic sequence that's been referenced and copied many times sure. but also in much um, uh, subtler ways and part of that to get back to our question of intent is 
due to the way that it switches back and forth between uh, realistic location shooting, which was Wells' original vision. He wanted it to all be shot on location and seem very real. But uh, the producer, Harry Cohn, uh, preferred the more classic studio style of shooting on sets and required Wells to come back afterwards when he saw the original cut and said, you know what? You're going to shoot a lot of artificial sets and make this better. Right. And so it sort of switches between uh, the real and the uh, created, the imagined, the artificial in a way that sort of uh, causes the picture to come in and out of dreams. Yeah. And so, for example, the amusement park uh, that the uh, characters in the current version inexplicably go to at the end just in order for things to be going on somewhere weird right um you see it as an establishing shot as a matte painting so you see a, a very expressionistic sort of dreamlike version of this location and then when uh at the end when uh the wells character leaves the uh the, the scene of the the final explosion um he's on the uh, realistic, actual sort of Coney, I don't know whether it was literally Coney Island or where it was shot, but it's its a real amusement park. They match the sets in the first one, or the matte painting or whatever it was, renders the realistic world. But the first time you see it, it's a weird dream. And then it's suddenly it's like, oh, you've you've come out from reality and you're in, uh, you know, you, you've entered a different realm. And so that's something that, for example, to name somebody who is, uh, deeply steeped in war that David Lynch does all the time, yeah. moving back and forth between the super artificial and then suddenly the the shockingly real. And so uh, Wells clearly didn't intend to pioneer that uh, because he <laughs> wanted it all one way. Uh, but the the film, uh, you know, has a voice of its own that uh, is is bigger than the uh, uh, vision of either of the competing creators. Is that surreality that that is present in a Lady from Shanghai? Is that something that doesn't exist much in other uh, more um, realism uh, noir films of the time? Um, I wouldn't say so. So, for example, Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, another of my favorite 40s noirs, also has a, a deeply dreamlike quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, is... Uh, another film where sort of famously the the plot doesn't quite make sense and there's a <laughs> famous anecdote about about that um and uh so it definitely is happening in in a heightened realm of dream uh, basically anything with a sort of an expressionistic uh f- film style and uh shot on sets is going to be somewhat surrealistic and and dreamlike and the and the more talented the director the uh the more that is the case. Sure. Uh, Sunset Boulevard by Wilder is, is another example of something mm-hmm. that is, you know, happens in the realm of the grotesque and has a heavy uh, a hint of, of surrealism about it. Right. Um, so <laughs> it, it is uh, a consistent thing. But the the jarring juxtaposition of also the, the opening uh, where uh, the Wells character, Michael O'Hara, meets... Uh, the Rita Hareworth character, uh, uh, Rosalie Bannister, on a handsome cab in New York. It is weirdly dreamlike because it's shot on a set, presumably part of the reshoots. And you don't even realize, given her costuming and his costuming and the fact that it's a handsome cab, that it's not a period piece at the beginning in those early scenes. And then suddenly it's revealed, oh, they're they're in New York City. There's the And now we're suddenly 
it, we almost sort of seem to sh shift periods. Right. So that, that's another example of uh, sort of the the more heightened surrealism that comes about as a result of the the juxtaposition of the two uh, periods of principal photography. Sure. Another example is the aquarium set where yeah, yes. the uh, uh, marine animals uh, behind uh, Hayworth and Wells are shot on with uh, rear projection screens. Yeah. And some of them are wildly out of scale. So, yeah. you know, there's a, a little, you know, what in, in real life is a terrapin turtle that is, you know, larger than any turtle in the world hanging around behind them. So <laughs> right. uh, do we look at that as uh, intentional surrealism or the limitation <laughs> of uh, budget and, and uh, technical effects? But certainly uh, it is deeply weird in a way uh, that it calls attention, I think, to its surrealism more than a lot of other oh, certainly. Uh, dream like noir films. Yeah. The, uh, the, the monkey funeral in Sunset Boulevard is totally real. It's, you just can't believe it. And uh, yeah, but I think that the, uh, the giant octopus <laughs> is definitely a surreal stylistic touch. And, and Sunset Boulevard, uh, another famous story is it began on a super surreal note where uh, originally, uh, William Holden is narrating the film from the morgue, and he yeah. uh, uh, apparently, you know, gets up in the morgue dead and talks with all the other dead in the morgue. <laughs> right. And then that was well. Once they screened that, they went, I, "I'm not. Sh this may be a, a style jump too far for the very beginning of the film." Uh, but uh, so it has a, a normaler beginning, whereas this film has a putatively normal beginning, which is because of the way that it's shot is already uh, deeply odd. Yeah. Uh, and we can talk about uh, how surreal Wells' Irish accent is uh, as we go on here. Um, or just corny. <laughs> or just corned beef, yeah. Yes. Uh, before we get started, I want to reiterate that we talk a lot about Rotten Tomatoes on this show, but this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. Uh, we don't endorse Rotten Tomatoes. We just use it as a metric in this case. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's seen a lot of movies and writes and talks about film a lot, uh, what do you think about the popularity of aggregate review sites? Um, I confess that I actually do check them myself when I'm wondering whether to go uh, see something or not, and I don't, uh, you know, know the uh, the director. Or, or um, there are certainly people in the Hollywood system who want to blame Rotten <laughs> Tomatoes for wrecking the box office potential of movies that people don't like. Right. Um, I. Uh, not being a Hollywood executive, uh, feel that I do not have a dog in that fight. Sure. Um, and uh, the, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of issues un under the hood. And the interesting thing there is that, uh, of course, trying to get a sense of historical reviews is tricky because if you look for Lady of Shanghai, it's actually got quite a good tomato review because it, it's full of retrospective reviews that were written later. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort I'm a little surprised that this is the oldest film you've ever done because we had a bit of trouble coming up with a film that fits your remit because uh, after a certain period of time, the films that uh, critics like and the films that, uh, uh, that, that the critics get stuff wrong way less often now mm -hmm. than they used to because uh, critics used to disdain all genre films. They used to disdain everything that wasn't a sort of a literary drama with sort of highfalutin uh, dialogue. Right. Uh, the the uh, Prior to, uh, first of all, the French critics at the Cahiers de Cinema and then the advent of film schools in the, the 70s and the uh, 
sort of film buff culture that sprang up after uh, videotapes and accelerated with uh, DVDs, uh, your uh, class of, uh, you're much more likely today to get a film where I agree with the critics on Rotten Tomatoes who give it something a high rating and disagree with the stupid regular people who give it a much worse review. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, there's a much greater treasure trove of classic American films that were, uh, including the Western, uh, that were sort of disregarded by the uh, more literary-minded, uh, highfalutin, pretentious critics of, of their day. Yeah, I think we're definitely better off for the increase in conversation and uh, people talking and, and discussing and reviewing movies. But yeah, double-check that uh, that review from um, moviemom.com before you uh, don't go see something because I got a bad review. Uh, well, we're talking about The Lady from Shanghai today from Columbia Pictures. It was first released in France on Christmas Eve in 1947. Uh, Wells' films were always more popular in Europe than America, and this film was no different. It finally received its American release on April 14th of 1948. The final theatrical cut of the film is 87 minutes long, but the original cut by Wells was 155 minutes, meaning over an hour was cut by the studio, and we'll talk about what was cut a little later. The film was not a success in America, being made on a reported $2 million budget and grossing only around $1.5 million. Contributing to the film's poor earnings was the fact that Columbia Pictures had dumped it on the market as the second half of a double bill with very little publicity. Some rejected titles for the film were If I Die Before I Wake, which was the title of the novel that it's based on. Black Irish was also considered. The film's, yeah, the film's working title was uh, Take This Woman for a While. However, that was dropped as there was a 1940 MGM picture called I Take This Woman, which was a total flop, and it had experienced so many reshoots and delays that it was nicknamed I Retake This Woman. This film sits at 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is much higher than the typical film that we cover on this podcast. But we'll, we'll talk later in the show, as we did previously, uh, about the, um, the uprise in ratings and some of the negative reactions that it received uh, at the time from critics. Uh, it does not have a Metacritic score for that same reason. And it has a IMDb score of 7.7 out of 10, um, which is... Uh, not too bad, I guess. Uh, in its favor, it was selected just last year to be added to the National Film Registry, along with 2018 classmates The Shining, My Fair Lady, Hitchcock's Rebecca, and Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. It was directed, of course, by Orson Welles, though curiously, he is uh, listed as uh, uncredited in most... Uh, I guess most internet pages that you'll go to. Uh, his role in the credits in the film is given as screenplay and production by Orson Welles. And interestingly, his previous film, The Magnificent Ambersons, also featured a change from the norm, featuring no on-screen credits in the film, and Welles himself announcing each actor and their role. And his own credit he gives merely as, My name is Orson Welles. There are a few taglines for the film used in promotional materials. The film's poster features a quote from the film by Rita Haber's character, I told you, you know nothing about wickedness. The other lines were, the story of a reckless woman, and you'll forget there was ever a woman like Gilda when you meet the lady from Shanghai. And that one last that last one proved ironic considering Columbia Pictures head Harry Cohn was very angry about the fact that Wells decided to cut and color Hayworth's famous hair seen in Gilda for the film in an attempt to distance her from that film, which came out the previous year. We'll have more on that later. The film was written by Orson Welles, adapted from the novel If I Die Before I Wake by Sherwood King. Several other writers, though uncredited, are rumored to have worked on the script. Charles Lederer, writer of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and His Girl Friday. Uh, writer and TV director Fletcher Markle also reportedly worked on the script, as did writer-director-producer William Castle, and we will definitely be talking about him later. As for the plot, Columbia Pictures head Harry Cohn 
after having seen the film in a Columbia screening room, reportedly offered $1,000 to anybody that, that could explain the plot of what he just saw. So would you care, Robin, to take a shot at a virtual grand and summarize the story briefly? Um, well, it's just a, it's the story of a man who gets uh, drawn into a tortured, uh, dysfunctional uh, uh, a marriage between a, uh, a, a young, beautiful, uh, uh, obviously uh, sort of trophy wife mm-hmm. who has been uh, 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 who is the wife of a, uh, a corrupt and and uh, and broken, and we can tell he's corrupt and broken because he's uh, disabled. Right. Uh, uh, super lawyer Arthur Bannister, played by uh, Wells regular Everett Sloan, uh, and. Uh, uh, a uh, the the weird uh, tormenting uh, menage, which sort of prefigures the action of Knife in the Water, at the early Polanski film, mm-hmm. uh, becomes a a, a quadrangle uh, when an extremely bizarre character, a, a second banana to uh, Bannister named uh, George Grisby, uh, pops in, and uh, the part of the plot that becomes a more standard detective plot or mystery plot or suspense plot involves uh, a plan where he seems to be asking the Wells character to uh, to rub him out for a fee, but really he means to f- uh, fake his own death. Mm. But then it turns out to be um, something else entirely and part of uh, Bannister's attempt, uh, again, to torment uh, uh, the Wells character for having the temerity to being uh, young and, and vital enough uh, to attract his wife. So right. <laughs> um, it's better to, uh, so rather than dwelling on, on the details of it or expecting realism in the part of it that suddenly turns into a courtroom drama, I think it uh, makes total sense emotionally if you just focus on the relationships between the characters and don't uh, spend a lot of time squinting at the plot mechanics of uh, how those final uh, betrayals occur. Yeah, rather than it being just a straightforward narrative, maybe it's a little more like those RPG narratives that we talked about where it's like you guys were supposed to uh, go visit the king, but you killed somebody, and now we're going to do a uh, trial by combat or a courtroom scene or something like that because it belongs here. It's about the relationships between the characters, not about how they get from uh, S to T to U and what it... This is sort of a five-act film. In the fourth act... Uh, has a lot of detail in it that is probably very important in the original novel, I would assume, not having read it. Yeah. But is, uh, I, I think, complaining about the fact that it sort of rattles by without over-explaining itself um, is uh, is perhaps a, a mistake. Because I don't think this would necessarily be a benefit from being an hour longer, to be honest. And uh, if you're going to cut some stuff, cut the stuff that just makes the boring plot make sense and focus on the story, which is about people. Yeah, I've I've heard that it's confusing because of that cut, but I wonder if that would just make it more obtuse and if this was the studio's, you know, best shot at trying to make it a little more streamlined. Uh, of course, like a lot of the cuts that were made from Wells's films, they were destroyed. The originals were, so we'll never know. Um, that was a pretty good summary. Uh, you win the fake $1,000. <laughs> and the fake $1,000 you won is worth around $11,000 in today's dollars, according to internet inflation calculators. And by that same metric, the $5,000 that Grisby offers O'Hara in the film will come out to around $57,000 in 1947 money, making his offer seem a little more substantial, uh, but still kind of small, I think, for a murder plot. Can you remember the first time that you saw the film and your reaction to it? Uh, I saw it as a university student Hmm. in a rep cinema in uh, Toronto, where I live, 
which no longer exists. And it's called the Nostalgic Cinema. <laughs> and this was a little sort of hole in the wall on top of another bigger rep cinema owned by a different person. And so uh, the uh, person who owned the uh, Nostalgic Cinema had a vast collection of his own prints that he would show and uh, showed a lot of stuff from the silent era through to the 50s or even 60s. And you would go and sit down uh, and it was maybe like a had maybe 80 seats tops, probably less than that. There was a little cubicle that you went to that was full of his film, film book collection. So you could sit and, and uh, before the film started, you could peruse his film books and then go in and sit, sit and watch. And there was sort of a, a dedicated uh, a group of people and, uh, and uh, talkers were sternly dealt with by their members of the audience. <laughs> we were, uh, my uh, uh, then girlfriend, now wife and I uh, remember being at one screening where uh, the uh, someone was uh, chatting with uh, someone else, uh, you know, as if he was at home watching it on, uh, on oh. a VHS. And uh, another patron yelled out, "What are you part of the script?" <laughs> uh, so, and uh, so it was a uh, a great way to be introduced to so many of the classics of uh, studio cinema through seeing them actually projected. Yes, uh, and. Uh, not in the pristine prints that you uh, now get thanks to the DVD and Blu-ray uh, revolution. And the uh, Blu-ray version of uh, Lady in Shanghai that I just watched is surely more pristine than whatever I saw at that time. But yeah. uh, it, uh, it it definitely was the ideal way to see a, a movie in the late 80s, that's for sure. Yeah, that's I'm sure that's how Ed Wells would want somebody to see it too. Uh, this film's inception is a tangled story, and like any Hollywood fable, there's a lot of print the legend attached to it, but we'll do our best. Uh, in 1946, Wells was directing a stage musical production of Around the World in 80 Days with songs by Cole Porter, and it was being produced by Mike Todd, who was a theater producer who would go on to produce the Best Picture-winning movie version in 1956. Todd bailed on the production when he went bankrupt and Wells chose to self-finance it as he had on previous shows but he found himself with a $55,000 bill for costumes and I haven't even done the inflation calculator on that one but it's big. He made a deal with Columbia Pictures president and co-founder Harry Cohn to cover the costumes and in, he said in return that he'd write, direct, and star in a Columbia picture for free although I believe that he was uh, he his contract said that he would receive a percentage of the profits but of course he did not get a profit on this film. As for why he went to Harry Cohn, it's debatable though Wells' estranged wife, Rita Hayworth, was Cohn's biggest star at the time, so that might have helped. And apparently Cohn was good friends with Sam Spiegel, for whom Wells had made The Stranger. And he brought The Stranger in under budget and on time, something that Wells was developing a rep for having trouble with. And it also made money, so it's possible that Wells reasoned that Spiegel could put in a good word for him. There's, <laughs> there's an apocryphal story from a series of interviews uh, that are collected in This is Orson Welles uh, by Peter Bogdanovich, where Welles tells the story of calling up Cohn for the money, and Cohn asks what his picture is going to be about, and Welles said that he was in the box office of the theater that he was working in, and a girl in the box office is reading the book, If I Die Before I Wake, by Sherwood King, a book that Welles hadn't even read, and so he offers that to Cohn off the cuff. Uh, and I've also seen Welles tell that story in a BBC documentary uh, from 1982, although he calls the book uh, The Man I Killed. And that's a cool story, but it's probably not true. Uh, the... Too good to check. Yeah. 
too good to check on that one. We'll just trust Orson. Uh, right. the, the real story seems to be that the director, William Castle, who would go on to be a kind of budget Hitchcock uh, with B-movies like The House on Haunted Hill, uh, The Tingler, and Homicidal, had bought the rights to the book with the hope of directing it, and he had sold the rights to Columbia. He produced a treatment and sent it to Wells, and Wells suggested that he could play the lead, and Haywith would play the femme fatale, uh, fatale opposite him. Uh, Castle did not get to direct the film. Of course, he had to settle for an associate producer credit, though he did work on the script and reportedly was a second unit director from uh, on the film. And this is all from Castle's daughter in the documentary Spine Tingler about his life. Uh, Wells didn't like the book very much, reportedly, and he set out to spend only a few days on an adaptation of the script. Uh, and he would reportedly um, change the script or the dialogue uh, almost daily on set, and he would encourage the actors on set to improvise their dialogue as well. And a lot of people have said a lot of things, both deserved and undeserved, about Orson Welles as a creator. But it's hard not to feel for him when you start to learn about the things that he was dealing with, uh, not just in his career, but specifically on this film. He's a young prodigy. He's just 31 years old when he's making this film. And like we said, his first major picture was Citizen Kane. Uh, His second was The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, just as ambitious. And he gets this assignment from Nelson Rockefeller, who at the time was heading up the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs in the Roosevelt administration. And the assignment is to go to Brazil and make this on-location docudrama about Latin American culture called It's All True. And so while he's out of the country, RKO takes a hatchet to Ambersons, and that's not good. And then Rockefeller leaves the board of the project, and George Schaefer, the head of RKO, steps down. So now Wells is stuck in Brazil with 200,000 feet of a movie that's never going to get made, and he's got a movie that's being savaged by studio editors back in the States. So he actually comes back to the U.S. after six months in Brazil, and he ends up doing a lot of work for the war effort, doing radio productions and entertaining servicemen. And after the war, he makes The Stranger for Sam Spiegel at International Pictures, uh, which was an independent studio at the time. And he's told that if he can bring the film in on time and under budget, he'll get a four-picture deal, which he does, and then the deal evaporates. No four pictures, no deal, and the film actually ends up making money despite all this. So you can understand at this point his complete disillusionment with Hollywood as a whole. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the uh, probably even uh, more uh, difficult thing was that he was married to Rita Hayworth at the time, and their relationship had already disintegrated yes. before they shot a frame of it. Yeah. And so uh, part of the uh, combination of... Uh, desire and possessiveness and loathing that the Everett uh, Sloan character has for the Hayworth character, uh, uh, one is tempted to uh, to find those emotions uh, in their actual relationship. And by the time the project finished, they filed for divorce and went from uh, estranged spouses to ex-spouses. Yeah. So uh, that's a, a classic example of the sort of tensions between a director slash leading man and leading lady that have characterized a, a lot of uh, films over the years. And that uh, that dark emotional charge is, I think, what makes uh, the film uh, continue to be interesting, uh, even at the moments uh, when you're wondering about his accent or uh, <laughs> the other uh, things about it that, uh, unlike Citizen Kane, there are things in this film that uh, have not uh, dated uh, all that well. Yeah, it is. It's so tempting to read the film that way. I, I mean, he casts himself as a well-meaning naive who gets in over his head in a world of sharks. And like you mentioned, of course, he's he's divorcing Rita Hayworth. 
And at the end of the movie, he's he's walking away from her. <laughs> She's literally dying on the floor, and he's saying, uh, "Maybe I'll live to forget her." Even I've heard that even choosing to shoot much of the movie on location, which they did in uh, Acapulco and San Francisco, uh, which was uncommon for the time, was an effort to keep Columbia execs from interfering with just one more movie that he thought would be taken away from him. Yes, and and it's shot. The the boat sequences are shot in Errol Flynn's yacht, <laughs> yeah, know, which, uh, which Errol crazy. Flynn was there and was he was he was uh, the the sailing master on on this film. Yeah, and uh, apparently even appears briefly as an extra. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I was I was looking for him, uh, but I couldn't find him. I also heard that because uh, you know it was his yacht, he had in his contract that they they couldn't shoot you know or they couldn't use it at all unless he was around. And of course, this is Errol Flynn, you know, on the downslope. So he would disappear for days on some kind of bender in Acapulco, and they'd be like, "Okay, well, I guess we're not using the yacht today." Uh, well, you know, there, I'm sure there were other there were things probably mirroring the action of the of the film uh, in between shots when it seems. Yeah, right. Exactly. The same sort of um, drunken sniping that goes on. I could see happening. Uh, and and your mentioning of, of drunkenness is another really important thing about this film in that uh, this is a movie about people who are drunk. Um, yeah. And you see them drinking at uh, at certain times, certainly during the, the yacht sequence. Uh, but throughout, they, these are people working on alcoholic logic. <laughs> and uh, that may explain why the story doesn't make sense to the people who are making the decisions that, that drive the story. But uh, this is a, clearly a story of four alcoholics. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> to understand uh, their behavior and everything they do and their impulsiveness and their violence and their weirdness, you have to understand that the characters are uh, alcoholics and are sloshed throughout. Yeah, it doesn't explain why Wells's character, uh, Michael O'Hara, um, would believe that he could confess to killing somebody and nobody could do anything about it in this plot. I know that there's some complication with like corpus delecti laws at the time, but if you're just if you're literally confessing, uh, I feel like and there's a lot of blood, they could probably get you on that. Yes, uh, Hollywood depictions of the law and the legal system in general are pretty <laughs> loose. Uh, probably up till, I don't know it, whether Perry Mason TV actually has a realistic version of the law or not, but certainly uh, the farther you go back in film history, the more ridiculous the legal system is. And in 30s and 40s films in general, they assume that the uh, viewer knows nothing about it and will just make stuff up. So yeah. the, you can't be convicted of murder if they don't find a body. There's never been a law anywhere. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, a linchpin around which this turns and which I assume, uh, again, is possibly part of the, the the novel, because that's a section of the story that begins to feel like a novel adaptation instead of a character study. Right, right. And I'm sure a lot of the hard-boiled crime novelists at the time might have uh, been fans of the police blotter, but, you know, didn't have any real legal experience themselves. I think that, yeah, I think they knew the cop side better than they knew the courtroom side. Yeah, well, in theater, Wells was an impresario, uh, writing, directing, designing. Um, and at least at this point in Hollywood, directors were expected to just direct, uh, like you mentioned before, on pictures that would make a little money and then disappear. And they were tasked to give what the studio wanted. Um, I've heard another, it's a possibly apocryphal anecdote uh, from Wells himself, that he was weeks into filming on Citizen Kane when someone on the crew told him, 
uh, you know, you don't have to move the lights. You know, we've got a crew for that. He was apparently getting up and like helping light the sets themselves. It's like he felt like he had to just direct the entire show and wasn't comfortable with the slow, to- uh, sometimes slow administrative process of filmmaking. And as somebody with a theater background myself, I can attest that sometimes you have to work really hard and put in long hours and put yourself in weird situations to get something done quickly uh, in time for curtain. Now, I'm going to bet that that story is more true than the last one. Okay. Except that the tone of the person, the, 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 the gaffer or whoever or the cinematographer was, you know you don't have to touch the lights. Right. Is probably the way that was said. Because hey, buddy, we're union. Very imme- uh, easily imagines uh, Wells from his theater background of just getting up a ladder and just pointing the light the way he wanted it to go and having right. to be reminded that that was not his job. Yeah. And there is another story that I'm pretty sure is true. Uh, Apparently, Wells needed a set repainted over a weekend uh, on the shoot. And I'm assuming that this might have been the Funhouse set from the finale. Uh, And a Columbia executive named Jack Fear uh, said to him that they couldn't do it. You know, it'll cost a fortune to get union guys to paint this set on a weekend. So Wells and some friends uh, broke into the paint department at Columbia, got the paint and went and repainted it themselves. And at the end, and this is a little too far, I think uh, they hung a banner on the set saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear, F-I-E-R himself. Uh, When the union guys got to the set on Monday, it didn't go over well. They went on strike and they wouldn't go back to work until they were paid the triple time that they would have gotten for doing it. So Fear's, uh, Fear charged it directly to Wells, and he had the union guys make their own banner that read, All's Well That Ends Wells. Uh, again, this has the, the ring of truth about it because it's <laughs> it's anti-self-aggrandizing. Yeah. So yeah. the joke is on Wells at the end. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and the same principle that biblical scholars figure out that things that might have been embarrassing to early Christianity, if they're left in... That's probably true. I think we can uh, apply that same principle to this story. Yeah, it's not the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross story of, yeah, and I sold him on this book. I hadn't even read it. It's not that yeah. kind of story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Orson Welles is known for his unique style in the Maison Seine of films. Um, he brings a lot of his theatrical background to the design of his films. And there's a lot of use of light and dark that would become emblematic of a lot of noir cinema, um, hearkening back, of course, to the German expressionism. Uh, a movement of theater and film. He'd also use the camera in really innovative ways, um, and he'd plan elaborate setups and shots. And everybody always talks about the opening tracking shot in Touch of Evil, which is great, but no one remembers the coach scene in the beginning of this film uh, where he sets up, apparently they set up nearly a mile of dolly track in Central Park, and they used a a 20-foot crane to film the scene where O'Hara is driving Elsa home after she's been attacked. And one of the reasons nobody talks about it is because most of it was cut by Columbia's editor at the time, Viola Lawrence. And it's still an impressive sequence. I mean, you can see what Wells is going for. There's this uh, it's just in the same way that he uh, did this in Citizen Kane as well. He uses, you know, physical separations within the frame to se- uh, separate the characters. Um, the characters in this scene are uh, physically separated by the roof of the carriage, but they're also separated sort of emotionally. He thinks that he's, you know, making time with this pretty girl and she's totally lost in some other world and reverie. And there's a great use of light and costuming in these in the opening as well, because O'Hara who we take as sort of a scoundrel is very dimly lit. He's almost in darkness. And Elsa, who we we assume is the innocent beauty, she almost glows in her polka dot dress. Uh, And we'll, of course, find out later that she isn't as innocent as she seems. Um, And I just think that's a really neat sort of effect. Yeah, and even less noticeably, another thing that he's doing way before anybody else is overlapping dialogue. Yes. Is that, that throughout the film, there are little bits of sort of throwaway dialogue or they step on each other's lines. And of course, that will become a trademark of Robert Altman 30 years later. Sure. Uh, and here Wells is doing it uh, to a lesser extent and in a different way. But 
uh, that would have been anathema to uh, a, a, you know, if there'd been, if that had been shot on studio and the, uh, the, the script supervisor then reported back to Harry Cohn, right away it would be, well, you've got to reshoot. He's letting the character, <laughs> the actors talk over each other. What's right. going on with that? So yeah. um, that's definitely a, an example of, uh, of Wells, and even just uh, unusually subtly for him, uh, just sort of sneaking into the corners a, a technique that would be, uh, you know, deemed innovative uh, two generations later. Yeah, I read also that he had planned to have very specific moments in the film where you could almost not hear uh, what the actors were saying, that you might have to strain to hear certain lines and sort of set up this sort of loud and soft uh sort of quality to what's going on and just like a lot of the changes that the editor made the sound guy went in and fixed all that they just leveled all the sound and just kind of ruined that effect so again he's doing something that nobody else is doing and like you said is anathema to, to just hollywood filmmaking at the time but they, they couldn't even give it a shot they couldn't see maybe this guy's let's let's let him try something we hired orson wells yes but they hired orson wells to quickly knock <laughs> to- off <laughs> a free. genre piece <laughs> right yeah and did not expect a two and a half hour cut or uh things to be shot on location or uh you know it the and and the film and watching it again uh out of the context of you know my original uh viewing of the film as part of the context of seeing a lot of noir and other classic films at one it, it seems even more disjunctive and strange to me now mm-hmm. as a as a piece of style than it did at the time so uh as film buffs, we tend to like stylized things. Um, And uh, so if you, you know, if you like your Kubrick and your Lynch and your Coens, of course uh, you're going to dig wells, but this would, uh, since no one else was very few other people were doing it that way or other people whose work were surreal, like um, Howard Hawks in in the big sleep was, was surreal and a less in in your face manner, that this would have been very shocking uh, not just to Harry Cohn, but to audiences in its day. Yeah. And uh, the uh, expectation of realism from a film that people had, their, what they thought of as real was extremely artificial, but you know, it's, it's uh, artificial to shoot something on a set. It's artificial that characters never talk over each other, but the very realism of the realistic bits would have been the thing that was shocking to people, not the stuff that was the sort of smoother more studio-oriented film. So, you know, Harry Cohn was not looking for a bizarre masterpiece. Make me something weird and make it Wellesy. <laughs> right. It was the opposite. It was, yeah. you know, you're a talented guy, just just color within the lines for once. And right. of course he didn't do that. <laughs> uh, Wells had planned with the cinematographer, Charles Lawton Jr., to use a lot of low-key and natural light. And like you mentioned, that they did shoot a lot on location. And they would use filters as well to try to keep the daytime outdoor scenes from being too bright, which is, you know, when you're shooting in Mexico during the day, like on a yacht, is uh, is is quite a task. Do you think, you know, part of the term is noir, something being black or dark. Do you think that that's integral to the sort of mise-en-scene of a noir? Or can you have a, a sunny noir? Um, there's certainly some later sort of sun-baked noir uh, there's a 1971 Australian neo-noir called Wake in Fright, uh, directed by the Canadian director Ted Kotcheff. So that hmm. is, and that's outback noir. And there have okay. been some <laughs> other, you know, any Australian noir film is going to be sun-baked like that whole continent and country is. Sure. Um, but that it has all of the themes and interactions and tropes 
of a noir film. It's just under the beating, punishing sun rather than in the weird dark of night. So I think the uh, real test is, is the world around you hostile and menacing, Mm -hmm. which usually means that it's dark, but you can go the other way as well. You just can't be in the middle of that spectrum. Yeah. Um, that's certainly true of Chinatown, where uh, Jake Giddies is, uh, you know, he's fanning himself as he's walking through the desert, like looking for water. But he's certainly surrounded by hostility on all right. sides. Because it's it's a film about thirst. It's about the lack of lack of water. So, of course, it has to be it has to be hot. Yeah. There's a movie from a couple years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, that was remade by Christopher Nolan called Insomnia, which is set uh, in the Arctic Circle. And I think Al Pacino was in the um, remake that has a kind of it's more of a maybe a thriller, but it has noirish elements. And the idea was uh, he's just blasted by light, you know, the entire time. And that becomes sort of a metaphorical element in the film. You know, he can't retreat into the darkness. It's dreamlike because he can't sleep. Yeah. And he's like hallucinating. Yeah. Yeah. One of the you mentioned before the aquarium sequence, which I really love. <laughs> it's it is probably it's a little uh, distracting, and I have to imagine that somebody like Harry Cohn or even your average audience member would just be losing their minds and not even focusing on what's going on. And I listened, you know, I watched the film a couple times, and I listened to the dialogue in that scene. And the dialogue's not really important in that scene. <laughs> it's just basically him uh, telling her basically the plot with uh, Grisby. And then her sort of setting the hook, you know, if you will. Uh, so I think that even though it's distracting, it's still so amazing. I mean, you've literally got huge octopuses and eels coming out. And it's a little on the nose. It's like, she's a monster. <laughs> the sea there's is deadly. super weird animals. And yeah, also yeah. there's an octopus and a turtle. Yeah. yeah, it fits right in with how bombastic the film is. Yeah, so that it's sort of all about their, uh, you know, they're in a uh, a... Uh, subsurface moral world and uh, they are uh, weird creatures enacting a primordial mating ritual and and there's a plot point too where they 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 finally kiss and then they're right, right. observed later and that becomes important during the uh, during the courtroom sequence but yeah, yeah. Uh, you know it's a, a prime example and until they get to the hall of mirrors of just uh, how visually weird and and menacing the the surroundings of their uh, circumstances are yeah, uh, before we leave the yacht behind, um, apparently the dog on the yacht was Errol Flynn's, actually, uh, that was his dog. So uh, his dog is very photogenic, I'll say that. And as far as his uh, cameo goes, um, I had heard that as well. Like I said, I looked for him, couldn't find him, but maybe he didn't know he was uh, in a movie. Maybe he was just at the bar that day. I think Errol Flynn always knew whether <laughs> there was or wasn't a camera pointed at him. Even in a bar, he could hit his mark, I'm sure. Uh, I've, I've, Errol Flynn... Uh, I think was almost uh, was very frequently intoxicated while on camera and yeah. that would not have thrown him. <laughs> uh, speaking of intoxication, um, I really love the, the picnic uh, sequence uh, set piece in this. Uh, and it, like the rest of the movie, it's totally nuts. It just shows how out of depth this character is. You know, somebody mentions a picnic and it, it's this gigantic luau there's a mariachi orchestra and there's riders on horseback with torches and everybody's laying around and getting drunk and just sniping at each other. And they get there by canoeing through a swamp filled with snakes and crocodiles. It's definitely Wells' idea of a pic- picnic. For sure. <laughs> outlandish, sure. oversized one. So we're talking about crocodiles and weird creatures and aquarium beasts. And this got to be where we talk about Grisby, right? So sure. uh, George Grisby uh, is another thing that is very disjunctive about this film is that uh, 
his performance, uh, the, the actor's name is uh, Glenn Anders, is on right. a whole other level. He's very clearly glistening with sweat. He is uh, shot. Uh, one of the complaints Cohn had was that there weren't enough close-ups, but he's very frequently shot in an extreme close-up. It's sort of a, a close-up we won't see again until Sergio Leone. Yeah. And uh, his uh, characterization is so bizarre and over-the-top that you immediately look at this actor and go, oh, it's that guy. I've seen that guy in a ton of films. Wow, and this is a really good showcase for him. Except he's got almost no film credits. He's got like 16 roles or something. He goes from the silent era to uh, guest spots in 50s television. Right. And it's an indelible, unforgettable performance that really uh, breathes uh, a weirdness and, and perversity uh, into the film and uh, is is unforgettable and... Uh, and it's one of those things that's like, well, this is actually, the, this was the thing he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he got to start in vaudeville, I believe. And he, and he was a silent film actor for a while. He was actually in the 1951 remake of M, which I didn't know because I haven't seen it. But he just walks away <laughs> with every scene that he's in. And it's almost like one of the criticisms, or it's not a criticism, one of the facts that I hear is, of course, Wells didn't want to do close-ups for the film. He was going for something different and maybe something um, a little more realist. And, he, of course, he was forced to, like, shoot... Um, uh, close-ups later in order for them to be inserted into the film. But there's no way that that could be true about um, these close-ups of Grisby. Like, those are so surreal. Like, they had to be part of his original plan. And like you mentioned, the way that he's just soaking wet and target practice. Like, yeah, that's, that had to be part of the original vision. Right. I'm, I'm sure what it really meant was put in more regular close-ups. More Rita. To replace all of your weirdo close-ups. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, I mean, you're tempted to imagine that he had no close-ups and Harry Cohen said more close-ups. And so he shot all these super weirdo close-ups that were more disturbing than any of the long shots. Yeah. But I, I, I don't buy that theory. Even, even as I speak it, it, it sounds untrue. <laughs> well, the location shots do look really great in this film. There are a couple scenes and I'm, this is one of those things, too, where I'm not sure if this was a mandate or if it was part of the plan, but where we do get sort of more claustrophobic kind of tight close-ups and two shots. I'm thinking of the scene where they finally get back from Mexico and they're getting off the yacht and uh, Grisby's laying out his plan for um, for O'Hara in this um, dockside cantina, I guess, or bar that's there. And for no reason really at all, except for, I guess, they're being close and conspiratorial, they both get up and stand in front of this window and he's kind of giving him the whole plan. And behind them is a um, view of the of the bay, but it's clearly superimposed in because like the water's not moving, nothing's going on. Like that was definitely shot in a studio that wasn't shot like on the water. Yeah, and it's, it's hard, uh, definitely... What you do in a noir film almost uh, by default is that it's almost always a story of somebody falling into a trap. Yeah. And as the trap uh, gets uh, tighter and tighter around you, the compositions close in. And so mm -hmm. you will see uh, directors, whether it's Lang or Ox or, or Wilder or whoever, the uh, you'll start to be framed within frames, which is why you see windows start to show up, right? Yeah. Because whether it's the aquarium or the window of the marina, uh, a window inside of the movie uh, screen frame is a constriction of the world. It is a, a, a trap. It is a literally a box that you're in, like a, a comic book panel. Yeah. And so uh, it absolutely makes sense for the uh, film to uh, begin to narrow in and, and close in on the characters 
uh, as that begins to happen. And so, uh, you know, it, it makes absolute sense and, and makes it uh, seem less than credible that that would have originally been like a, a long uh, single shot take from a, a, a distance. That That's the only way you're going to shoot that scene is, is the way that it was shot. Yeah, and there's this, you know, uh, Wells, of course, was um, was a Brechtian, and so there's this sort of distancing effect that he sort of tries to put in, this artificiality, which, in my opinion, I'm not saying that it conflicts, but it definitely contrasts heavily to the sort of realism that he wanted to capture by having it shot on location. You know, they could have easily done all the boat scenes and everything. Uh, they could have done, you know, the picnic out in Catalina or something, but, of course, they're doing it all on location. So you've got these very expansive... Uh, sort of vistas and then you've got these really now it's the plot they've got these like tight claustrophobic scenes like you mentioned and i wonder about it, it, it wells is often described as a brechtian uh, but i think what that means is just that he is theatrical because uh <laughs> if he was brechtian you know there'd be a title card that says yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is only a movie smash the state uh, right and there's no sign although it does re- say what stand up or give up or something at the end right yeah <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, there, a, a truly Brechtian work continually reminds you not to become emotionally invested in what you're seeing yeah. in order that your ideological Marxist purity uh, be uh, <laughs> reified. Which and, butts up against, you would think, the, the romanticism of noir. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think Brechtian is, is a misnomer uh, that uh, Brecht and Wells both had a taste for spectacle, but they used it for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. That in Wells, it is psychological, as you suggest, mm-hmm. uh, whereas uh, with uh, with Brecht, it's it's ideological. But uh, if you want to slam a film director uh, whose work you want to see recut, the way to describe it is Brechtian. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's an epithet. <laughs> Uh, absolutely in the hands of any studio executive, if, if, assuming they know who Brecht was, which I, I imagine Harry Cohn probably does. Right, right. Does he work for MGM? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, enough about Wells for now. Let's talk about Rita Hayworth. Uh, Hayworth was f- fresh off a of Gilda at this point, which is another noir, noir that's it's probably remembered uh, being better than it is. Um, it's not bad, but maybe not uh, great. But it, Hay- it, This isn't the I Have to Fight You podcast, is it? Because Ooh, I, okay. I, I, Gilda is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Okay, and, and, interesting. Uh, and also weird and dreamlike in its own way, and also about a, a weird, perverse troika between characters also anchored by uh, three great performances. And and as you indicated earlier, is the thing that cemented Hayworth's uh, image somewhat to her chagrin. Uh, yeah. And not only uh, did it typecast her uh, on film, but famously she said that it typecast her in life, is that everyone... Uh, who married her uh, thought they were marrying Gilda and were disappointed when they discovered that they'd only married Dollabel Cancino, which of course was her her real name. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not. I don't want to get into a fight. Uh, I do really enjoy Gilda. I guess I'm not sure what it is that puts me off about it. I know that often noir protagonists are um, unlikable or antiheroes or not good guys, but I don't really like that guy very much. Like I understand his ambition, I understand that his pettiness, but it makes me—it makes it hard for me to kind of root for him. Uh, oh man, this is turning into the "I Have to Fight You" podcast. Oh, well, no. of course, <laughs> he is—he is a a doomed and tragic figure. And the thing that the thing about Gilda is that the thing that hurt him, the thing, the wound that uh, injured him and turned him into the spiteful, uh, destructive person you see, happens off screen. Yeah, but it's in the antecedent action. It's in the. Uh, uh, 
the the subtext of how they play everything. Yeah. And so uh, if you're looking for a, a film in which you are uh, s- sympathetic to the main guy and his objectives, because that's one of those films where, uh, and it's this is something that happens in all sorts of different genres, where you're rooting against what the character wants because you know that what the character wants is destructive. Right. And so you are both, you sort of want them to fail or, or maybe to succeed. And that may be what you're getting at in terms of that so, sort of uh, sympathy gap. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and uh, for me, Glenn Ford's performance sells that character and I, and I buy into it. But if you, if you can't go there, the, f- the film isn't going to uh, work with you. And I think the technical term for that is you are wrong. <laughs> Okay, let me let me get that down. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll I'll go with like a like a Marlowe, like like the guy sleeping with his partner's wife, and he's a real he's a real asshole. But still, I sort of feel like I understand him. We no, can agree. Spade, you're 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 oh, slamming Marlowe. Marlowe is has a has a higher uh, he he's a Chandler character, so he has a higher moral code. That's what I like Chandler characters. That must be what yeah. it is. We can agree on uh, the third man, though, right? Uh, absolutely okay <laughs> good friend assuming you like it you're not yes. wrong there are you <laughs> yes i, I just I assumed have. you were right you could also I should be have led wrong. with that <laughs> it seems to be what i'm learning here uh well you mentioned uh her image and of course that was a big issue for her and apparently was for wells as, as well uh, as soon as she was cast his first move was to cut off and dye her hair which everybody especially harry Cohn, went nuts over but to be fair they made it into a press event like you can see photographs online of you know, people taking pictures of her having it done. And of course, Wells is standing there the entire time. And Harry Cohn about that remarked that, uh, quote, the six people who saw what Orson Welles did to Rita in, in uh, the lady from Shanghai wanted to kill him, but they had to get in behind me. <laughs> yes. Not since Carrie Russell would cut her hair on Felicity. <laughs> I guess that was a prefiguring of that. It's the other way around. Um, yeah. yeah. And the other interesting thing about this is that, uh, Rita Hayworth, who who you could expect uh, to uh, not like the film because uh, she was at odds with Wells personally through the making of it and, and uh, that it was a flop. She actually took Wells' side and recalled that as the great film that it is and says that it was Harry Cohn who was wrong. And yeah. she was, uh, you know, quite happy and excited to have a different image for this one because she was trying to not be Gilda in every single film. So uh, she still came out of that remembering it uh, fondly, which is not the case for every film made by a director and actress who are splitting up at the time. Yeah. Just a note on Harry Cohn, who we've talked about a lot. He he seems like a real scumbag, even for a Hollywood producer. He seems to have considered Hayworth his personal property, and he had reportedly had Wells' office on the Columbia lot bugged. He did the same thing to Glenn Ford uh, and his dressing room during uh, Gilda. And the whole thing kind of reminds me of Jack Waltz, the movie producer character from The Godfather. You know, he's mad because Johnny Fontaine is dating this starlet that he'd been grooming as a mistress. And so he's not going to put him in his war picture. And it gets really weird when you know that Johnny Fontaine is based on Frank Sinatra, who did have a conflict with a Columbia producer and had to be persuaded to cast him in from here to eternity. And that producer was Harry Cohn. In general, uh, with 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 a few notable exceptions, uh, Hollywood studio bosses were not known to be swell guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Harry Cohn was uh, a, a, above the rest in people's hatred and contempt for him. And uh, another story is that, you know, when uh, uh, Billy Wilder went to his funeral, uh, he looked around and said, everybody's just here to make sure the bastard's dead. (laughs) I heard that. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> Put a rock on top of that coffin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so yes, he. Uh, uh, and uh, and it wasn't that any of the things that he was doing beyond, I suppose, the the bugging uh, were. Uh, that above the fray, but just that he was just uh, controlling and wrecked your movie and was personally nasty and unpleasant Oof. on top of that. Whereas uh, uh, Jack Warner could do nearly all of those things, but uh, uh, and uh, he sometimes was charming about it. <laughs> That's the key. Uh, I wanted to mention some of the supporting cast uh, really quick. We talked before about Everett Sloan playing Arthur Bannister, who, uh, like you said, uh, he was part of uh, Wells's Mercury Theater radio show company. Um, and he was in Citizen Kane. He was cast as uh, Mr. Bernstein. That was his film debut. And he'd go on to appear with Wells in some other films. He'd be, he was in Journey into Fear. Um, he was with Wells in Prince of Foxes as well. And he would continue to act until the mid-60s when he tragically committed suicide um, because apparently he got the news that he was going blind. And I don't know what other health concerns were going on there, but he committed suicide after that. He's he's a great presence always. He's, he's sort of unconventional in that he's kind of mm-hmm. a kind of a mastermind type and he can play both sort of a, a sympathetic confidant and a, a more kind of a villainous character. But there's something, he's a type, but he's also very specific in a way that mm-hmm. kind of uh, transcends his uh, his type. And uh, and that's what's uh, always really fascinating when you see him uh, show up is just how uh, very specific he is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ted DeCorsia plays Broom in the film, and this was actually his film debut, but it worked out for him because he would go on to play heavies in gangster films for the rest of his career, like films, uh, such in films like The Naked City, uh, The Enforcer, and The Killing. Um, Erskine Sanford plays the judge in the film, and Sanford got his start in New York theater, and he was later a part of Wells's Mercury Theater Company. And there's a funny story. He apparently met Wells in 1922 when Wells was seven years old and living in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they met backstage. Sanford was part of a touring production, and uh, he would later go on to appear in almost all of Wells' films until his death in 1952. So you never, it's who you know. You never know who you're going to run into. Um, and Wells is very famous for gathering a rep company around him that mm-hmm. he could easily cast from, uh, which is uh, a a way that for him to exercise control, and b undoubtedly also a source of friction with the studios because they had a whole roster of character actors uh, who you know whatever type you had in a the movie they had somebody standing by to play that part, and then Wells would come in and say, "No, I'm I'm going to put my guy in there." <laughs> and, sure. Uh, so again, that would be another uh, you know sticking point. Another one of his guys was the character Goldie, played by Rush Schilling. Schilling got his start as a burlesque comedian until Wells cast him in a Shakespeare production, and the two became friends. And Schilling often played comic roles during his time in Hollywood, uh, like the orchestra conductor in the film version of Hell's a Poppin'. And he appeared in five of Wells' films, the last being Touch of Evil, which was released after his death in 1957. Since we're going around the horn here, do we want to talk about Touch of Evil? <laughs> so Touch of Evil is, is of course, interesting in that uh, there, there was a restoration done uh, posthumously yes. that restored uh, Wells' vision of the film from right. his notes yeah. and uh, is uh, in every way superior, except I do miss the Henry Mancini theme song of oh, the yeah. tracking shot. Yeah. Uh, with a, a great, uh, w- one of the greatest examples of, of Latin crime jazz in the movie soundtrack history. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and also has sort of weird, disjunctive performances in the corner. So in that case, Dennis Weaver as a sort of uh, psychotic hotel owner and yeah. uh, a great Marlene Dietrich performance. And and once again, 
uh, as someone playing an ethnicity that maybe they shouldn't. In this case, Charlton Heston, that famous Mexican Charlton Heston is playing the lead. Um, (laughs) But uh, another uh, brilliant film and another film that was too weird and and harsh for the the time and that uh, the uh, studio then had to had to mess with again. His assignment was to just make a simple little crime movie that would play on the same bill as a more prestigious film. And uh, once again, he uh, did something uh, deeply meaningful and weird and, and disturbing to uh, to everyone else. And that's what signaled his final break with uh, with Hollywood and him having to go off. And, you know, his subsequent films, he would just make them a few minutes at a time. Right. Uh, and, you know, sometimes match a shot of a punch being thrown uh, on a set in Spain <laughs> with yeah. one. Uh, and then the guy getting getting punched would be in Southern California or, or what have you. But after that, everything he did uh, wound up being a, a patchwork that he would have to assemble. Yeah. The, the, like, Trust of Evil turns into like a freak out biker movie, like in the middle <laughs> for some reason. It's 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 very strange, um, but it's it's very emblematic of him. And I, I really like it. You mentioned the music or sound before. Um the sound for this film, or at least the music for this film, uh, Wells hated. Uh, it was composed by Heinz Romheld, and it was added way after the fact and without any uh, permission uh, or input from him. And he had apparently provided um, sort of a rough musical soundtrack inspired by South American and Mexican music, which was somewhat fitting and, of course, I guess would be reflected in Touch of Evil later on. But, of course, they put all their musical touches in later without his uh, advice and he had compared it to I think like Looney Tunes he said like just a lot of the musical those little musical things in a soundtrack that are supposed to help the audience know what's going on he, he hated all of that yeah and it's not even all that memorable it's not something really... yeah and also um, the song uh, that Rita Hayworth sings or actually she doesn't sing in the movie Please Don't Kiss Me uh, was inserted as well um, including the entire scene where she sings it uh, it was written by Doris Fisher and Alan Roberts, who also wrote Put the Blame on Mame. And she was uh, audio doubled by Anita Ellis, as she was in Gilda uh, in this film. And well, at least Please Don't Kiss Me is thematically appropriate. Yes, but not a very romantic sounding song, though. No, <laughs> it, it, is, it is a warning that yeah. the Orson Welles character should have heeded, as, should... as in the case of all great of uh, stories of femme fatale. Who... I am an octopus. <laughs> Stay <Yeah>. away. <laughs> this film has a phenomenon that I like to call the long goodbye effect. Uh, in Altman's uh, The Long Goodbye, the main theme is you know, sort of this torch song called The Long Goodbye. It was written by John Williams. But it also appears in different forms in every other scene in the film. Like it's a Muzak version uh, at the convenience store. The hippies next door are singing it. You know, the mariachi band in Mexico's playing it. It like is all music in this universe just The Long Goodbye. And we kind of get that in this film as well, because even outside of the yacht scene, you know, we see where we hear refrains of Please Don't Kiss Me. And especially in the it wells up in the film's finale, which wells that just drove him nuts. He hated that. Uh, well, it's it's an unintentional irony. Uh, you know, the, the, the light motif can be overused. <laughs> yes. Um, and the last time we talked, we talked about an even better example of that, which is where the Star Trek theme reappears as lounge music when uh, Kirk goes to the bar <laughs> yeah, for yeah. some exposition. So it's not even the weirdest example. Oh, my of favorite that. song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they reprised that in one of the, the Discovery shorts. Uh, they, they had a little uh, musical wink and a nod to that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, we were talking about the finale. Um, apparently, there was a 20 minute sequence planned we see in the film. Um, him going through this fun house that looks like a really high budget episode of Batman. And 
he had planned like this long extended sequence. They spent we- uh, weeks, you know, painting and building the set for it. And it was cut down to just three minutes um, by the editor, uh, Viola Lawrence, that I mentioned before, who I should say was the first woman editor, at least the first high profile woman editor in Hollywood. She was nominated twice for an Academy Award. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting to, again, like you mentioned previously, I'm not sure the movie would be better if it was longer, but it would be interesting to see what he had planned to actually happen uh, during that that supposedly 20-minute sequence of him just bouncing yeah, around. I think you're absolutely right that emotionally that sequence does not need to be 17 minutes longer. Right. And uh, that might be something that was sort of brilliant on its own, but also would take you away from the, the relationships between the th- three characters, which are... Uh, what should be taken, you know, that that's everything is coming to a head there. Yeah. And uh, do, do you need a 17 minute action prelude to that? Uh, I would submit not knowing, not having the footage prove me wrong. I would submit the answer is no. Yeah. And you'd have to wonder how much of that would be taken up by um, just sequences in the mirror scene as well. Um They constructed this huge mirror set that had like 3000 square feet of glass uh, and they were all one way, so um, Lawton could shoot through them. And the mirror sequence remains iconic and is one of the best parts of the film, but it, I can't believe it's it's very contained. It doesn't seem as expansive as uh, they made it seem to be. The, the opera sequence as well supposedly was cut down a lot. Um, there is that very um, curious scene where they go to the Chinese opera, and you've got a whole thing going on on stage. And I love the part when... You know, what's at stake here is that she's calling these guys, but they're not coming to help. Um, he doesn't know or he figures out. And the cops come in as well. So we've got cops, we've got gangsters, and the people on stage are still doing the play. <laughs> but he makes sure to to show us that they're all kind of looking askance like, what's uh, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, these cops. Well, Chinese opera performers are very focused. Yeah. They, um, well, yeah, you, you have know, to be. <laughs> if you... Uh, you know, uh, Jackie Chan was trained that way and, uh, his, uh, his Sifu used to beat the hell out of him and he, he was <laughs> right. grateful for it. So yeah. those guys know they're going to get whacked with a board if they stop to care about Rita Hayworth. Yeah. Yeah. If Orson Welles stumbles in, the show must go on no matter yeah, what. Exactly. Well, uh, as we get close to the end here, I wanted to uh, check in on the state of the robot holocaust. It's a segment we have on our show. I have a theory that if a film opens with excessive voiceover with overly long title cards uh, or opens over water, you know that helicopter shot that you get when you're moving up over some body of water and it pans up to a city line. Uh, Also, uh, previous guest Sam Landman pegged uh, on-the-nose musical choices and seeing the main character in the first scene as being indicators that you might not be seeing a very good movie. Um, And the lady from Shanghai sits in a weird space. I'm not sure that these things apply because a lot of the examples I pointed out are more modern tropes. I mean, there were certainly no helicopter shots back then and lots of VO is par for the noir course. So let's see. You know, and even the ocean is something of a character in the film. So I can I can forgive that, too. Um, Orson's Irish accent uh, might be another story, but who knows? Are there any? It was, uh, it was absolutely typical of the time, though, that that sort of. Oh, I can do this. I'll just do an Irish accent. Well, and also that the sentimentality around Irishness uh, was at a peak uh, in uh, the 40s and 50s. And it reflects sort of a. a uh, nostalgia for uh, you know um, American uh, uh, class mobility, and that you can now look back on Irish and do affectionately corny uh, send-ups of of their culture, as opposed to you know the way that they were initially treated when they started arriving in the 1860s. So yeah, um, and it, so if you're going to dock any film that does that, you have to throw it almost all of John Ford. As yeah, well. well, yeah. So it's one of those. <laughs> One of those things where 
you know, you have to uh, look at it and, and I think just see that as, as an artifact, just like the, you know, they're wearing fedoras and they're, you know, a, a broad Irish accent is, is, is seen as, as charming. And that's just a, a trope you have to accept. Are there any tropes in films that like when the lights go down and the projector starts that you see and say, oh, boy, I think we might be in trouble here. This might not be a great film. Uh, well, I, I think uh, conversely, the thing that always throws me out is is a film that does not pose its central question quickly. OK, uh, that a, a film that does not use its first 10 minutes very effectively or does not tell you what kind of film you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course there's exceptions to everything. So sometimes a film will seem to be a, when it's really going to turn around and be B later. But, um, so, uh, I'm perfectly happy to, for example, see the lead character in the first scene because you're posing a question about that character. So something, uh, so a, a credit sequence, for example, that is just a cityscape with music playing and, and superimposed titles on, uh, is is bad news. Um, <laughs> as, as a uh, connoisseur of art films, a, a current one to look out for is something where the credits are just a black screen with white lettering over silence. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah, <laughs> uh, that's always uh, going to indicate that they didn't have a music budget and uh, perhaps the film is going to be uh, pretty slow. Yeah, um, I don't I don't know about silence. Uh, although sometimes he uses silence, but I have to cape here a second for uh, my boy Yorgos Lanthimos who I think has a sort of modern Brechtian thing going on. And I think he does that because he just wants to get it out of the way. He wants to get into what's going on. He's not interested in wasting any artistry on doing some kind of, you know, creative title sequence. You know, you're leaving the fear center of the brain in Fight Club or whatever. He just wants to kind of get right to it. Yes. And the certainly the titles in, in the new one are very much part of it. And uh, yeah, yeah, becomes part of the, 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 the artifice and the, the whole chapter title of it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there are exceptions to everything. And oh, yeah. in some cases, just I'm not going to spend a lot of money on this, but it's also a big signifier of your you're in for uh, you may also be seeing a film where there's a long shot of someone doing dishes uh, for, <laughs> that goes on for three minutes to establish realism. Sure. Well, as far as the state of the robot holocaust goes, we should be okay. We should just stay out of conveniently abandoned seaside fun houses. You mentioned having trouble finding contemporary reviews of the film uh, earlier, and I wanted to look at some. I actually did find some uh, as we go into our Pick of the Patch segment here, where we look at the contemporary review reviews. Um, Bosley Crowther is a name that I'm learning to dread uh, on uh, yeah, this he's, show. He's the epitome of everything I was talking about earlier. Yeah, he was the patron saint of SASS, a critic for the New York Times uh, at the uh, during the time. And he had a few things to say in his review. Um, specifically, he said, quote, For a fellow who has as much talent with a camera as Orson Welles and whose powers of pictorial invention are as fluid and forcible as his, this gentleman certainly has a strange way of marring his films with sloppiness, which he seems to assume that his dazzling exhibitions of skill will camouflage, end quote. Uh, yes, uh, Crowther combined uh, bad taste with condescension <laughs> and had an extraordinarily long career at the, at the most important post and, and is, was absolutely the apogee of someone who wanted uh, the stodgy literary values of the stage and uh, was uh, looked down on uh, almost all of the, the films that turned out to be the important Hollywood films and, so and praised <laughs> the, uh, the stately uh, dull things where they explain the theme to you at great length. 
I might get myself in trouble, but I kind of want to read like a biography of him if there is one. <laughs> like, I don't know if anybody would, would even write one. Maybe it was another uh, put a rock on the on the coffin type situation. But I don't know. I'm just fascinated by what a grump he seemed to be. Uh, Someone who goes to a lot of films, a biography of a critic is mostly going to be. And then he went to another movie. And, <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. that such yeah. and such. Was, yeah, yeah. Uh, Newsweek said, uh, quote, apparently what writer, director, actor Orson Welles had in mind was a full-blooded, full-blooded whodunit of the tough school, and he has succeeded in providing some of the standard ingredients, which is some faint praise there. Variety's review called Lady, uh, quote, OK, box office entertainment value suffered from the striving for effect that features Orson Welles production, direction and scripting. Script is wordy and full of holes, which need the plug of taut storytelling and more forthright action. So it seems like everybody is rebelling against those sort of more outre elements that he's trying to put in. Middle brow critics hate stylization. Yeah. And even later, you see that with like the, all of the Kubrick films. People, they very often got terrible reviews and then were reevaluated by the time the next one was out because he made one every five years. Yeah. Uh, the, I think finally critics have learned uh, that the Coen Brothers movies that seem on the surface less serious are actually even more serious than the other ones. Although they... They still grudgingly like the less stylized ones. Mm -hmm. But that's uh, because the thing is, if you're a critic, you have to go to every film. And if you don't like the style of a style forward director, Wes Anderson being another example, you're also not going to like the next one. And so there's a a lot of resentment you see uh, for, uh, you know, normally any other career, if you realize you didn't like Wes Anderson movies, you would stop going to them. But of course, anyone with a film beat has to go to the new Wes Anderson movie. And if you don't, if you don't like a lot of big old style on film, that's very, very specific, you're not going to like his stuff. And, uh, the, there are enough film buffs now to appreciate very stylized things and to see the lessons of what has stood the test of time is very often the things that as the thesis of your podcast states were disregarded at the time. But, uh, even now stylization is a big uh, bugaboo for uh, a lot of people. And, and, but on the other hand, uh, we live in a world where the the favorite, which is an incredibly weirdo stylized film, can be right. uh, uh, one of the Oscar front runners. So yeah, uh, yeah. It, that that does continue to change. That might be a function of who's starring in it as much as anything else. For a guy who one of my favorite current filmmakers is Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, that's just kind of my opinion on that. Um, I'm wondering uh, I did if not there's... think that the maker of Dogtooth was going to be up for a, an Academy well, or whatever. That's, yes, that is exactly true. I'm, I'm floor, floored by that as well. I'm wondering if there's a certain inoculation that goes on um, just vis-a-vis stylization uh, as, it, as it goes to audiences and critics. Because you mentioned that they're resistant to it and you've got something like a dog tooth or a Yorgos Lanthimos uh, film that comes out and people are like, huh, what? I don't, I don't know what this is. And now, you know, a short 10 years later, we're at the Oscars. Like Wes Anderson as well. I think a lot of people would say, I don't like that quirky stuff with the uh, indie pop soundtrack. And I mean, he's still, you know, he's one of the biggest filmmakers in Hollywood. So some, somebody's going to these things. Uh, I know I am. Yeah. Well, me too. Yeah. Although Wes Anderson does need to shake it up a little bit. Well, he he does pick a different world cinema tradition to uh, wrap his usual concerns around every single time. But uh, he's definitely an example of someone who uh, is being recognized as an auteur at the time and having a very clear style that people come to expect that is yeah. much... Uh, that, and filmmakers like that would not have existed without the, the French critics of the Cahiers de Cinema who discovered uh, film noir 
as sort of the, the jewel in their understanding of the hidden value of uh, American film or who elevated Hitchcock, that, uh, who was also, you know, a uh, completely disregarded at the time to the point where he never won an Oscar. So, you know, we, yeah. we live in a world where uh, Yorgos Lanthimos can be nominated, but uh, Hitchcock never won. And, uh, and he was right. just seen as uh, sort of a, a, ma- a maker of trifles. And it's, it's uh, uh, him and Wells and Wilder and Hawks who have uh, stood the test of time. Whereas, uh, uh, you know, your, your later films of George Stevens, uh, require a love of the actors in them to uh, to watch today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, time did improve somewhat the reputation of this film. Um, Wells told Bogdanovich in that interview I mentioned before that the first nice thing he heard about the film was from Truman Capote, who apparently loved it and could quote entire scenes from it. Um, Francois Truffaut uh, said of the film in his foreword to the book Orson Welles, A Critical View, that, quote, the only raison d'etre for the lady from Shanghai is the cinema itself. End quote, adding that the film is visually superb. Dave Kerr of the Chicago Tribune said it was the weirdest great film ever made. And film critic Richard T. Jamison called it, quote, the pivotal work of Wells' career and also undoubtedly the trashiest masterpiece in motion picture history. Those are uh, it's certainly the most outlandish. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Even those, there's a little bit of condescension uh, coming through there. Uh, and uh, In the last uh, one? Yeah, the trashy. Um, I, I think that, uh, uh, I prefer lurid or, or outre <laughs> okay. and trash. Okay. Less of a value. We'll get this guy. Down. We'll get this guy thesaurus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely, uh, he's, he's, he's putting his finger on something with trashy, I think. Uh, well, do you agree with him? Is this a, a masterpiece or a disaster piece or a, or a master fish? Um, it is a film that shows it's, uh, to reuse a phrase, trouble production history that, um, yeah. there are enough sort of disjunctures in it. That they do kind of, uh, you know, that you can see the rips in the fabric. But I think more importantly, of its, uh, it's a five act film. There's the the love act at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. between the two characters. There's the the, the boat, uh, which is sort of the the chamber, the acid uh, acidic chamber drama. Uh, then there's the, the Grisby act. Uh, where suddenly another character takes over the movie uh, for a while and introduce, gets all the danger, suspense themes in play. Then you get to right. the act that isn't that great, which is the courtroom drama. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've barely talked about how weird that it is. is. Yeah. It is well-staged, and Wells does as much as he can to put energy and uh, sort of interesting visuals into the courtroom drama. But that is the section of the film that is, oh, this is just by-the-numbers standard plotting and nonsense. Um, and then, uh, he becomes a fugitive and then you have your final sort of surreal, uh, climax to the fugitive uh, act. And so, uh, if it was a masterpiece, the way that, uh, chimes at midnight or citizen Kane are, it would not have a 15, 20 minute chunk of, uh, uh, sort of flat, uh, nonsense that he's doing his best to make interesting. And so that's really the, the the down point in that film and and that's why it's it's a recommend rather than a, a pinnacle uh, it's probably i don't we have to get our uh, non-existent legal expert to weigh in but i don't think i've ever seen a movie where a, a counsel um cross-examines himself before so that's interesting um 
I I think I think actually that's a that's a standard trope of bad courtroom scenes. I, I think there've been <laughs> that may have been the first and it may be the most most famous. But oh no, he started that. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen that uh, particular bit of Cod's wallet before. <laughs> uh, so I've heard, or I heard, the thing about the internet is like there's old things you can get, new things you can get, things that were around like right at the start of the internet can be dicey sometimes and i found evidence that uh wonkar y was working on a remake or sort of a reimagining of this in the early 2000s apparently with nicole kidman set to star in the female role and uh beat takeshi was supposed to be playing the bad guy i suppose in this case maybe glenn anders character i'm not sure and the story would be set in shanghai during the 1930s so seeing an asian filmmaker take the sort of title or pitch of the lady from Shanghai and trying to recontextualize it um, in China itself. Um, I think that that could be really interesting, but um, that died. If you believe Wikipedia, uh, at around, oh. uh, I don't know whether it was after or before that, uh, there was also a, a John Woo version that almost happened. Um, oh, and, yeah. Uh, I can see... This is the one, well, this is the one with uh, Brendan Fraser yeah. in the Wells role, yeah. Um, which... Uh, uh, seems difficult to imagine, and uh, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Uh, Although and, he was in, uh, wasn't he in the the um, the Quiet American? Yes, I, I think that he's especially after Gods and Monsters when he was praised for his sort of kind of dramatic turn. I think that he was looking for roles like that, and I think against uh, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Jones as uh, the Bannisters. Um, I think he might have been able to pull that off. I'm thinking less of the casting and more of, of that would have been a very odd choice for John Woo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Mirrors shootout uh, would have been brilliantly <laughs> staged. We need a thousand doves. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, as much as I love John Woo, I, I have difficulty peering into the alternate dimension when that film happened. Why does Elsa have two guns in her purse? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently that was uh, nixed uh, when the head of Sony Pictures, Amy Pascal, wanted to concentrate on teen films. So that's another one uh, on the list of things to not be happy with Amy Pascal about. Um, completely out of nowhere, this is maybe doesn't make any sense, but this movie kind of reminded me I mean, at least something part that makes of... no sense in a discussion of Lady from Shanghai. I do <laughs> not understand what is happening. Yeah, the, I've got a giant octopus that wants to talk to you. Um, it reminds me of Fletch a little bit, <laughs> you know, and like the sort of runner in Fletch is that the guy, uh, you know, hires Fletch or who he thinks is whoever he's supposed to be to to kill him. And of course, it's this plot, you know, that's you know, he's going to get some kind of insurance payoff. The hire a hitman to kill you trope is there's dozens of them. And I think this is the first one. And this is one where it's part of a different scam where it's just they're just trying to frame the guy. Um, and yeah. then also there's a, another bunch of movies, including there's a an Aki Karazmaki movie with Jean-Pierre Leo, where the uh, uh, the trope is refined to you kill him as a way of committing suicide because you can't bear to do it yourself. And then sure. in between you're hiring the hitman and uh, then you find a reason to live. And, and that okay. uh, that has been done a lot, both in episodic television. And I think there's a, a bunch of other films that do that. So that's definitely a, uh, a trope that that quickly evolved and then began to replicate itself. And you cut the Patsy's face off or burn him or something like that, so people think it's you. Uh, well, there's the faking your own death, and then there's the hiring the hitman to kill you, which sort of diverge after this. 
What, what are some examples of hiring the hitman? Uh, well, the uh, that uh, I think it's called I Hired a Hitman. The, it's a 1990 film uh, called I Hired a Contract Killer. Uh, and I <laughs> saw that at the film festival. And that was uh, the Finnish director, Aki Karazmaki. Well, I think that we have said just about everything that can be said about this film. Can you think of anything else uh, that has been left I out? I think when I've uh, name-checked Aki Karazmaki, my work here is done. Uh, yeah, I think that we um, nothing ended up on the cutting room floor for this one, so we've got Wells beat there. So that's it. Thanks for joining us, audience. If you want to let us know how you felt about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. Also on Twitter, you can find us at at craft disservice, no S. We're also on Apple Podcasts. You can search for Craft of Services there and subscribe, rate, and review us. And it really helps us out a lot when you give us a rating and a review. We appreciate it. You can also find us on Google Podcasts and Stitcher, all those places. Robin, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Robin D. Laws. And we should check out your book, uh, Beating the Story. Where can people get that? Uh, it's from uh, Game Playwright uh, Press. Uh, you can find that uh, on Amazon or your friendly neighborhood game store. Well, that's it. The credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Robin saying, keep it real. Mm-hmm.